Today, we have one purpose in mind of why we're here, of why we're opening up the text, uh, and it's to try and put in our heart in a new way, in a fresh way, in a more meaningful way, that God's, a life with God is one that is marked by uh, the liberation from bondage, a liberation from addiction, from old habits, into new lands, into wide territory, and that God's life is one that is always widening and never becoming more narrow. Uh, when we accept God into our lives, the course should be that we are more free and more free every day and every season. And uh, God's Word supports this, and He teaches us this in powerful ways all the time. Today we're going to be reading from Numbers. Actually, my first time preaching from Numbers. I'm very excited uh, this is also a sermon that I've sat on for 10 years, and so I know already that I'm going to leave here really frustrated, because how can you say 10 years worth of ruminating in 30 minutes, and we're, I, we're not going to hit the 30-minute mark today, we're going to go over that, sorry. Uh, sorry, not sorry, but uh, I, we're going to go to, another, Pedro, control yourself. We're going to Numbers. If you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 25 into chapter 14. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, he teaches his people by saying this. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they had come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of all the people of Israel in the wilderness in Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants, descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites, uh, I knew I was going to mess it up, Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and, and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone with, up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. For so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land though, through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are great of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. 
and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord dwells in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do not, only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us back. I pray that you would meet us here today, that you would be here among us, in us, moving through us. Uh, Lord, I pray for your illumination over your word. I pray for your inspiration and your revelation to touch our hearts so that we can examine ourselves, our lives, and see where we are going back down the ship and chaining ourselves when you bring us freedom. Spirit, you're welcome here. Do the work that only you can do. We give you this time. And so, Lord, I, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Today's sermon is called The Land of Milk and Honey. And to me, it's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. It's one of my favorite Old Testament narratives. But so that we really understand what God is doing, let's uh, catch up to the, some of the story of Scripture up until now. I'm going to summarize about 400 years worth of things, hopefully in the next three minutes, so it's going to be pretty easy. Uh, for 400 years, God's people lived as slaves in Egypt. Right? I don't want to assume that there's, uh, we all know this story. Some of us might be here and have forgotten or have never heard. And so for 400 years, God's people lived as slaves in the country of Egypt. For 400 years, God heard the cry of his peoples, but for 400 years, he waited for the right moment, for the moment that he knew was right. For 400 years, he heard the cry of his people until it was the right time. Moses was born when that right time was coming. And Moses was this unique man, unique leader, unique vessel in God's story. He was the perfect man for the job because he had his feet in both worlds. Uh, Moses was a Hebrew, right? This is before Israel was even a thing. They were only the Hebrew people. And he was born to the Hebrews in a time where Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies, right? To kill all the male babies, and they lied to him. The, Moses' story is awesome because it brings us a lot of really hard ethical questions to answer. The midwives lied to Pharaoh, and God blessed their lies and multiplied their people. And ethical question number one for you to consider this week is, uh, when is it okay for us to lie? It's really interesting, really important question. So they lie to Pharaoh, and they're saving all the male babies, and God blesses them for doing that, and they're increasing in number. And then Moses grows up, uh, well, actually, before he grows up, Moses is put in a basket and put in the river when Pharaoh's daughter was in the river, and he floats up to her. This was done intentionally, and the Pharaoh's daughter sees him, knows that he's Hebrew, but wants to take him in. She has compassion for him. 
And so Moses is the only person on the face of the earth who has both feet in the Egyptian world, right? The Pharaoh's adopted grandson. And then he also is Hebrew himself, and so he, understand, he knows the people. He grows up in Pharaoh's court, and then when he is an adult, he goes to see the Hebrew people at work, and he sees one of them get beaten. He kills the Egyptian who is beating him. He hides the body. The Egyptians find out. The Hebrew people find out. Both turn their backs on him. He runs to Midian. And just for reference, because an exceeding overwhelming amount of people in this room are not 40, he spends 40 years in Midian herding sheep. Right? Just think, we get tired of waiting on the Lord for a couple of weeks or a couple of days. We get tired of reading our Bible after 10 minutes. And Moses waited for 40 years doing this little smelly job. 40 years he was a shepherd. 40 years he laid low. And he would have done that for the rest of his life, but God met him in the burning bush. Moses is walking down one day. He sees a burning bush, which was not unusual because things catch on fire. Uh, but what was unusual about that bush was that it wasn't being consumed, right? Such a picture for the call that he had on his life. An extraordinary call, one of like passion and fire, but God promised that he wouldn't be burned up in that calling. He sees the bush. The Lord meets him and calls him. He tries to negotiate, and eventually he goes with his brother, so this new shepherd, this guy who grew up in both worlds, goes and he speaks freedom over the people, and Pharaoh says no, and before it ever got good, it got even worse, right? Before Pharaoh ever said, yes, you can go, the work got really difficult, even more difficult than it already was, and then God moved in powerful ways, in ways that he had never moved before on the face of the earth. He brought all of these 10 plagues. Right? If you don't remember, if you're unfamiliar, he turned the river into blood. He brought frogs. He brought lice and gnats to cover everything. He brought wild animals that eat human into the cities. He brought pestilence to livestock. He brought boils on everyone's bodies. That one would have specifically gotten me. He brought thunderstorms of hail and fire. He brought locusts to devour and cover everything. He, brought, he hid the sun for three days, three days of darkness, foreshadowing what he would do later on. Uh, and it all culminated in this one final plague, the worst one yet, where, the, where God himself brought the angel of death to Egypt, and every firstborn male son was killed that wasn't, whose doorpost wasn't covered in blood, foreshadowing what he would do to Jesus, with Jesus. Ethical question number two is, can God use evil things for his purpose? Right, consider that. Write that down. Can God use death even for his own purpose? Will we let him do that? Pharaoh eventually says, yes, you can go. And the extraordinary, like, the extra remarkable thing about that is on their way out in Exodus 12, Moses tells everyone to ask the Egyptians for things, and they all leave with gold and silver and clothing, right? Think about that. When in the world have we ever seen slaves freed from their slavery and on their way out leave with gold, silver, and clothing, right? They didn't just leave. They left with all of this plunder. Somehow God orchestrated things so that they would end their slavery, plundering their oppressors. And so they leave. They head to the Red Sea. 
where Pharaoh changes his minds and assembles the largest army in the world to go after them with the highest technology that they had at the time, the chariot, and God protects his people through a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke until he's, he calls Moses to go into the Red Sea and it parts the Red Sea and it says that they walked across the sea on dry ground, right? Not only did they get through but God even dried the ground where a sea lays, and they get to the other side. From here, they wander to the promised land, because all before this, God had been telling them, don't worry, you have a promised land. I will bring you there. I will end your slavery, and I'll bring you to this land of milk and honey, the place that I promised your ancestors, wait until it's time for me to move. And they're on the doorstep to this place that they have been promised, And God tells Moses to do two things. First, in Numbers chapter 1, he tells them, count all the people. Do a census. And just so that you don't mistake what's happening here for, oh, this like little motley crew, little like underdog story of these few people wandering, right? God is providing for actually 603,550 men. They only count the men who are 20 years and older, They only count men, and they don't even count the Levites, the tribe of Levite. Uh, And there's still at least 603,550 men, and God is providing for all of them, feeding all of them in the desert. And he tells them to, before they go into the land, to send out 12 spies, one spy per tribe. And for 40 days, they go out, and they pick up where we left off in our story today. The first part, the first point of today's message is a a bad report. Remember the first step is a bad report. So, and when this story begins, where we read starting from today, the spies have been out there for 40 days and they come back and give their report to Moses and to all of Israel. They said that uh, before this, when Moses was sending them out into the land, He tells them, this is actually a great time for us to do this because it's time for the first harvest of grapes. And so when they are entering the land, they are trying to see, can this land, is this land really good? Is this land as good as we have always heard it would be? And they go in there, can this land really feed at least 603,000 people? And they go in there and they see so much beautiful fruit and it culminates in this one Stock this one branch of grapes that was so heavy, it had so many grapes on it that two men had to carry it on a stick. The the land that God had promised them was great and beautiful and could sustain all of the life, all of the promise, all of the intimacy that God had promised he would bring his people, right? It's not just about the land. It's the place where God promised that he will dwell on this earth, on the face of this earth with a people, This land was their land of milk and honey, flowing, beautiful, vibrant, enough to sustain all of them and all of their dreams. And they go in there, and they see it's actually quite beautiful. In verse 27, they say, they come back and they show their fruit and says, we came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. And it says earlier on, it says that they they brought in pomegranates. If you like pomegranates, that's great. I personally don't like them very much. 
But there were so many pomegranates, there were so many grapes, there were all of these beautiful fruit that represents life, right? Because they don't have a Whole Foods down the street. They don't have a Walmart. Everything came from their labor, from the land. And if the land was plentiful, then life could survive in this place. And it's great. This is great. This is teeming with life. God can actually do something. He can form us as his people in this place. Like God wasn't lying to us when we heard all of these stories for 400 years of people who were slaves who were learning to not be slaves. Think about the potential and the excitement of finding a place where God said it would be your home. And they said, they came back, and their report was thorough. The land is great. But hey, there are also these people, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. They all lived there, and we were like grasshoppers to them. Like, we were little compared to them. They were so much bigger than us. Their report had to be about who was there. Moses told them, go and see their cities. Go and see if they're strong. Go look at their people. See if we can overcome them. And their report had the beautiful, had the plentiful, but it also had the obstacles. The the report itself wasn't a bad thing. Caleb comes in in verse 30. Caleb, one of the heroes of this story, one of the few faithful, right? Out of the 12, only two came back knowing who God was and that he would do what he promised to do. In verse 30, he says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He's like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. God told us. Do you remember who we are? You remember what we just saw, right? They were the people who experienced the plagues. They saw God move. They saw the Red Seas. These weren't stories that a second cousin knew about their best friend from another country, right? It was them themselves. They experienced God's move on this earth. They saw the walls of the Red Sea when they were crossing it. They saw God... uh, pass over their homes in the last plague. They experienced his liberation. They had the weight of all the gold and the clothes and the silver that they were carrying. They were fed by him on a daily basis. He had them in their hand, and he was showing them where he had promised to bring them. And Caleb was like, what's the holdup? Let's go. Like, are you kidding me? If God has brought us here, let's go and take the land. If he is with us, then who can be against us? He brought all of this. He has a plan. He promised us for hundreds of years to bring us here. And we're at the doorstep. Let's go. Let's do what he has told us to do. But then life happens. But then our human nature happens. But then our narrow worldly views come in. And the, cha- the story changes. 10 out of the 12 don't see it quite like that. 10 out of the 12 had every experience that Caleb did, but they didn't come to the same conclusion. In verse 31, they come up and said, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against these people, for they are stronger than we are. It's like, Caleb, that's cute. Caleb, I'm really glad that you're an optimist. Caleb, I'm really, it's cool that you have these big dreams, but we have to be realistic here for a moment. Caleb, yeah, we walked past through the Red Sea, but come on. Caleb, we saw the plagues. We saw the locusts. We saw the boils. We saw the river turn to blood. We saw that the sun went away for three days, but 
time for being cute is over. Look at these people. Look at their cities. We can't. We can't do this. We don't match up against them. And they don't just stop there. And it escalates. Because sin always escalates. Because sin is like a fire, and it never stays contained where you let it. It always spreads, and it always looks to consume as much as it ever can reach. The story continues, and it continues to get corrupted. It says in verse 32, so they brought, the people, uh, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. Right? They could have focused on God in the story. Instead, they focused on the people. Instead, they focused on the giants, thinking that they were bigger than God. They focused on these mythical people, the Nephilim, who are these, it's, it's unclear what scripture really means about these. It's like at one point it talks about how angels came to the earth and had babies with humans, and these were like giant people, right? Um, it's not quite like that. Scripture is telling a different story there. But they see these giants, and they're like, oh, my goodness, we can't do this. We're the little Hebrew people. And they continue to say, the land, this is the report, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are a great height. They bring a bad report. They bring a report that focuses on all of the wrong things. They bring a report that did not look to God and his promises and every experience that they just had with him personally his deliverance, even the pillar of fire that kept them safe from Pharaoh and his giant army. And somehow there was something different about these men. When it was time for them to stand up in their new freedom, they couldn't. They decided to turn around 603,000 men and all of the women and children along with that, the Levites along with that. And they wasted 40 years 40 years of their lives, this generation, only two of them entered the promised land. They wasted 40 years because they took their eyes off of the Lord and looked at every problem that they had. And so my first question to us today, for us to consider when we go about our weeks this week, when we go to the Lord, and if you are willing, if you give him time to let him examine you and your life and the way that you're living it, the way that you orient, orient your mind and the totality of how your life, where your life is going, is where in your life are you being too realistic? Where in your life has God given you a promise and you're afraid to go for it because it seems too big or too wonderful? You know the outcome. You know what he said. You know that the land is beautiful. You know that at the other side of being obedient is this land where your people will live with him, experience intimacy with him, have success with him, but you're just too realistic to go for it. Where in your life are you putting your fear above what the Lord has told you to do? And I would even venture to bet that there are people here who don't even have a promise from the Lord because you've not even let him dare to speak that over you. Let God give you what he made you to do in this earth. Let him tell you what your calling is. Let him tell you the grand adventure, the grand mission that he has for you and what he wants to do in you. From here, the story continues, and uh, the next point of the story is from narrow to wide. 
it's time to start paying off our big idea from the morning. Remember that the life, a life that is lived with God is one that is marked by being really wide and not narrow. Uh, let me reread a portion of what we already read in Numbers 14, uh, verses 2 to 4. It says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt, for, to go back to Egypt, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Right, to me, this is such a human picture of what we are like and what I see in my life constantly. Of going all the way up to the doorstep of what God has told me to do. And I like, get too realistic and I back away. And I, then I start grumbling and I point my finger at him and I blame him. I blame him for doing wonderful things in my life. I'm like that guy in that ship who goes back down because I just can't be free. I just don't know what that's like because it's scary. Because being free sometimes is way more frightening than staying in your sin, than staying in what's corrupt, than staying what is familiar, which for most of us are bad things, is brokenness, is hurt, is disappointment, is being wounded. For most of us, we have, are much more familiar with what the kingdom of darkness brings than the freedom and the liberation that God brings. Sometimes it's just way easier if our backs have been bent for so long to stay that way than it is to try and straighten our backs out. Ask the Lord to operate on us and give us straight, strong backs, right? They had the audacity, the people who went through this themselves pointed at God and said, oh my gosh, it would have been so much, why didn't we just die in Egypt? Why didn't we just all die as slaves? Or should we just, uh, why didn't we die in the wilderness? Why didn't God just let Pharaoh destroy us with his chariots? Why didn't we just not cross the Red Sea and have wasted all of this time? Let's just go back. Let's go back to what we know. For 400 years, our people have only been slaves. We know how to do that. Let's go back. It's just often so much easier to go back to our filth than it is to dare to go after what God has for us. It is just so much easier to go back on uh, below deck in my vision and just chain myself back and just do what I've been doing. That is always the easier option. But there's a bigger lesson that God is being that God is telling here. That God is telling his people, not just his people back then, but his people for all time. And it's that life with him is one that is marked by always being wide, by always being freed from bondage. And this is how he tells us the story. God is the best storyteller that has ever been. He crafts his story in all of the details in the most brilliant of ways. His life and what he's doing to people in all times is bringing us out of narrow lives and into broad lives by releasing us from bondage and bringing us into freedom. Usually, the way languages work is that a country says what their name is, right? And then all other languages usually do some form of transliteration of that word, right? Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I don't know how Deutsch, 
Alex is from Germany. I don't know how Deutschland turns into Germany, turns into Alemania in Portuguese. I don't know how that happens. But usually the way you translate the name of a country is you just put it into your own vocabulary, your own sounds, and then you find out a way to make it as close as possible. Uh, but the Old Testament name for Egypt isn't actually, has almost nothing to do with the word Egypt. The word for Egypt that the Old Testament uses throughout all of the Old Testament is this word right here. The Hebrews on the right, to pronounce it is on the bottom. It's Mitzrayim. Can you say Mitzrayim with me? Mitzrayim. You now know another word in Hebrew. Mitzrayim it has, is not the actual name of Egypt. It is not the transliteration of the word Egypt. It actually is these, a combination of these two words that come together, Tsar and Mitzar. And Tsar means pressed in, or enemy, or trouble, but usually pressed in, you know, like you press something together. And Mitzar means what is. And so literally the name in the Old Testament for Egypt isn't Egypt, what we say is Egypt, but it's this pressed, what is pressed in, or narrow, a narrow life, or geographically speaking, a double strait, a really narrow passageway in between two mountains. Right? And so God knew this and put this in the life of the Hebrew people. The name that this country was not actually the name of this country, but they came to know it as narrow, this narrow country because we have only ever been slaves here, because we have a narrow life and we have no freedom here, because all we know is bondage and service. Mitzrayim is not the name for Egypt. It's the way that they lived in this country. And to oppose this, God tells his story really craftily, really perfectly, really intentionally every time he talks about this land of honey that flows with honey and milk, and it comes out perfectly in Exodus chapter 3, verses 8, when it says this, God is telling his people about this promised land, and he says this, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God is always leading the people who will go with him out of narrow places to places that are marked by freedom. It's wide. Where you live with God is wide. It's not restrictions. It's great boundaries. It's beautiful living. It's wide land where we have all of this freedom, the end of all bondage, the choice to choose him or not the choice to follow his will or not. It is always better to follow his will. Let me say that really clearly. 10 out of the 12 did not do that, and it cost that generation their lives, and for everyone, 40 years. But God is faithful, and for the people who are on journey with him, he brings us to wide lands. He brings us into freedom. He brings us liberations through trials at times, through testing at times, through refining at times, but always to freedom, always to ending our addictions, always to ending how the world has taught us to be little, to bend our backs, to not be strong, to not be able to hear God's voice, to not have the power to obey, to listen and obey. 
right? Listen and obey in Hebrew is one word. There's only one word for it. If you're not listening, you're not obeying. And if you're not obeying, you're not listening. The way that God leads his people is always to widening our lives. Numbers 14 goes on. The story, one of the last verses that we read, says that they did not learn this lesson. The outcome of Caleb's impassioned saying, let's go, we can do this. This land is great. They are like bread for us. We will have them. This was God's will. This is what he's promised. We've seen him work. Let's go and do this. And in verse 10, this is their reaction. Because it's always easier for us to keep our backs bent than it is to try and strengthen them. In the 10th verse, it says, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Right? It's easier to choose what God is not saying. It is always easier. Let's go back to Israel. To Israel, Egypt. Let's go back to our life that we had. At least it's a life. At least they feed us meat sometimes. They say that while they wander in the wilderness. At least we had meat there. At least we had this there. At least I knew what to expect there. At least I could predict my suffering there. At least I didn't try, have to try so hard. I just am given a job and I have to do it every day no matter if it's killing me. No matter if I will be killed in the process. At least I know what it's like. And so let's just summarize this. Let's talk about our last point for today, which is God's boundaries. God promised the people of Egypt a land flowing of milk and honey. And uh, this is beautiful and perfect. Uh, I have two pictures here. This is the land of milk. This is the land of honey, if we can show the next picture. God had his hand over the creation of Israel. And he gave them this physical representation of what both meant. The land of milk was a land of uh, shepherds, of people not having a beautiful place, if you can show the desert picture, Tony. Look at that. There's not much honey there, not too many trees. It's not that wonderful. You're not going to have a pic too many picnics out here. But you were a shepherd. Milk. You relied on milk from your herd. And then he also blessed them with the north of the country that is beautifully fertile and beautiful. I've been to this. This is the Sea of Galilee. I've been there, and it is gorgeous, green. The lake is, the sea is beautiful. There's a lot of farming there, honey. And this is what God is telling his people, is that he will be with them in both, in deserts and in beautiful scenes. In deserts where there is no life, he will sustain us. And in beautiful green pastures, he will be with us. And he will protect us. Our God is able to bring us into wide countries where we have the freedom. And we also have good work. One of the things that he teaches his people is, yeah, yeah, you can be a shepherd. You can be a farmer. You can do that spectrum of work. And it's good work. So if you're called to be a shepherd, be a shepherd. Be with other people. Guide them. If you are called to be a farmer, that's great work. Each and every single one of us have been given a calling by him. And no matter what obstacles stand in your way, no matter how many giants, he's able to sustain the call. 
a life that is marked by someone who is on mission with him is one of being led to broad places and given good work. And so whatever you do in this life, if you're a doctor, an accountant, if you are an actuary, if you are a consultant, which means a million things, if you are a retired military, if you are a publisher, and I'm trying to remember people's jobs as I look at them, music industry, right? Yeah? Cool? You can do all of those things if that's what God has told you to do. He will sustain you in every single environment, every single context. If you're doing the work that he has told you to do, you do good work. And so let's call the worship team back up here. Uh, all of you have been made with calling, every single one of you. Every single one of you, like Moses, has been made to do a unique thing for him and with him. And if you don't know what that calling is, then let's enter a season where we figure that out, where we have discussions, where we try and decipher what God has made you to do so that we don't waste 40 years, so that we don't waste a long period of our lives working and feeling tired. Because if you are doing the work that he has made you to do, no matter how grueling it is, it's life-giving. It's worth it. It's beautiful. And so let's worship this God who calls us, who equips us, and who is with us no matter what obstacle comes our way. And so let's worship him, and we'll come back and close. <laughs>